0: The History Channel original podcast. History This Week, October 26th, 1948. I'm Sally Helm. A foggy morning isn't unusual in Denora. It's a steel town on the banks of the Monongahela River, tucked into a spot where the waters make a graceful horseshoe-shaped curve. Most of the men in town work for local industries— especially Denora Zinc Works and American Steel and Wire. The mills are at the heart of the town. At Christmas, the kids head down there to pick up a gift, an apple, an orange, a dime, and a box of animal crackers. On this day in late October, the waters of the Monongahela are still warm. The air is chilly, and the morning fog doesn't burn off at 10 a.m., it sticks around, casting a pall over this little community in western Pennsylvania, 20 miles south of Pittsburgh. There's always been something a little weird about the air in Denora. Everybody knows it. The sky changes color depending on what's happening at the mills. Sometimes it's yellowish or reddish brown or black. People in Denora have to scrub their walls and repaint their houses pretty often because they get covered in grime. Near the mills, flowers refused to grow. People knew the air wasn't great, but they didn't realize just how bad it could get. By the next day, October 27th, the fog is getting thicker. People are coughing everywhere, more than usual. Soon, they start calling their doctors, calling the fire station, because they're struggling to breathe. Before long, some of them will stop breathing altogether. Today, a fatal mix of vapors settles over a small town in Pennsylvania. What caused the Donora death fog? And how did it lead to the creation of the Clean Air Act? Mother's Day is around the corner.
1: It took about three days.
0: For three days, the mysterious fog in Denora has been getting thicker and thicker.
1: You literally could not put your hand out at arm's length and still see your hand.
0: Brian Charlton grew up in the Monongahela River Valley, five miles from Denora. He's a retired history teacher and a member of the Town Historical Society. He says by Friday, October 29th, People are starting to realize that the air is worse than usual. And yet...
1: Life went on as normal.
0: They'd all dealt with bad air before. In this mill town, it's just a part of life. And the people of Tenora are tough. World War II vets, recent immigrants. They weren't gonna shut themselves inside because of some fog. After all, it's Halloween weekend.
1: They did go trick-or-treating at the height of the smog, yeah it really was the worst time to go out. But again, this was the mindset.
0: The annual Halloween parade also goes ahead as planned. People squint through the haze to see the ghostly silhouettes of kids in costumes marching down Main Street. A dead cat is later found along the parade route, a black cat, two days before Halloween, hard not to read that as an omen.
1: And then you get arguments of different legends and things that come out of the smog as to whether you could see the Halloween parade. And to
0: make matters worse, there's the smell.
1: A very acidic, sulfur, kind of a pungent smell.
0: Some survivors say it was so strong you could almost taste it. Another remembers if you chewed hard enough, you could swallow it. people have started trickling into local doctor's offices. One of the doctors, Dr. Roth, he isn't too alarmed at first. He's mostly seeing his asthmatic patients, and that's expected. He knows from experience that the fog always makes their asthma act up. But soon, dozens of people are coming in. A little after 3 p.m., Dr. Roth's secretary hears a crash at the door and runs to investigate. She finds a man doubled over, gasping for air. He's moaning and clutching his throat. He yells between gasps, help, help me, I'm dying. And still, life goes on. On Saturday, there's a high school football game. The Donora Dragons line up against their rivals at Monongahela High. Some people insist that the players could barely see the ball, that their coach had to run up and down the sidelines, yelling instructions to help them find it.
1: He can see the ball, but these 16- and 17-year-old boys can't see the ball? Okay, I don't, I don't quite understand this whole part of the legend.
0: The players carry on, their dim forms thudding into each other.
1: There are 11 doctors in Donora for 14,000 people, and just about everybody in town is sick, whether they're willing to admit it or not.
0: They're dizzy, nauseated. They can't seem to breathe.
1: They're exhibiting some form of the symptoms that are eventually going to
0: kill people. Brian Charlton's mother-in-law was working at the local Bell telephone office the week of the smog. She
1: talks about going to work on Saturday, and she walks into the switchboard.
0: It's a huge room, about 40 young women sitting at a line of phones.
1: Supervisor comes up to my mother-in-law and the other young ladies who are walking in and said, "Okay, hurry up, hurry up. Everybody get to your station, get to your board. Everybody in town is dying. And she said the day was total chaos.
0: The phones are on a party line system. Multiple people share a phone line and only one can make a call at a time.
1: And there were people having arguments on the party line that I've got to use the phone now.
0: They're crying, begging her to put them through to any doctor she can reach.
1: So that's when it hit her that there was really something up. It's a disaster that they are totally unprepared for. There's no book that they can turn to and say, "Okay, what do we do in a case like this?
0: Doctors, meanwhile, are doing what they can, giving people oxygen, giving them adrenaline shots, which are usually used to tamp down an allergy attack. It's just a stopgap, something to keep people alive until they can escape. Bill Rongis was one of those doctors. He figured out quickly that the available treatments just weren't enough.
2: I told him the best thing they could do at that particular time is to get out of
0: town. That's him on an archival recording from the Denora Historical Society. Dr. Devred Davis, an epidemiologist who grew up in the town, says, yeah, that's what happened.
2: He was very, very vociferous. He said, get the hell out of town if you can.
0: Davis was two years old when the smog hit. Years later, she interviewed Dr. Rongus for her book, When Smoke Ran Like Water.
2: When I visited him in the old age home, Dr. Rongus told me that the folks that had managed to get up to Palmer Park it was just 500 feet above the valley
0: floor. They seem to recover. The problem is how to get them there. By Saturday, the smog has gotten so thick that you can't drive a car down the road. And so... He and his brother took
2: women and children into a horse-drawn wagon and hauled them up there
1: to get up to the park. They are trying to get from house to house. And these guys didn't sleep for, like, literally two or three days.
0: The entire town is now cloaked in gloom. Whether it was 12
1: o'clock at noon or 4 o'clock in the evening, you had to have your headlights on. And it would almost be as smoggy inside of the house as it was outside. As you walked, you picked up black greasy stuff on the soles of your shoes and you left white footprints i would stand under a street light and look up directly into the street light and it was just a small dim light
2: that i could see i interviewed a fireman john volk who remembered taking oxygen home to home to try to help people And
0: he said that even the air inside the fire station was blue. Volunteer firefighters move through the streets with flashlights and walkie-talkies. When they find a house with someone in need, they can't stay long. They have to ration the oxygen. They can give just enough to keep the person alive. Some families plead with them to stay, but they have to move on to the next house. There are other families waiting. This goes on all of Saturday night. The doctors call for help from surrounding towns. They ask for more oxygen, more medical supplies.
1: But whenever the outside towns approach Denora, they kind of hit a wall of smog. It's like this wall that's slowly creeping along the river.
0: The people of Denora are trapped. Despite the best efforts of doctors and firemen, hundreds are sick. And 11 people are dead. Dr. Rongus is also going door-to-door, searching for people who might not make it. When he finds one, he sometimes gives them an adrenaline shot to keep their heart pumping. It's a nightmare situation. And he thinks he knows who is to blame.
2: I was so bitter against him, you know, to see these poor people... Dying and, and suffering one thing or another. I said, there was nothing else. This is just plain murder. I had a good idea that just the
1: poisonous uh, gases were coming out of the denor Zinc Works. Somehow Dr. rongus gets on NBC radio and he says people are dying and it has to be the Zinc Works. It's the only thing that I can figure.
0: Other media outlets start picking up the story.
1: The deadly cloud over Denora, Pennsylvania,
2: but nobody knows what the poisonous vapor is in the smog. Residents have difficulty in breathing the murky air. Oxygen tents care for sufferers in the town's community center
0: transformed into a hospital. This gets the attention of the general manager of U.S. Steel. Just before midnight on October 30th, he personally calls the zinc works and orders them to turn down the furnaces.
1: So they begin to bank the furnaces at the
0: blast furnace, at the open
1: hearth, and also at the zinc works.
0: Turning the furnaces off altogether wasn't an option. Because once a furnace of that size is extinguished, it can never be started again. Ever. It would mean permanently shutting down the mill. And so instead, they begin to slowly lower the temperature of the furnaces. But at around noon on Sunday, October 31st, a miracle for the people of Denora. It begins to rain and the fog just lifts, evaporates from the valley. Alec Lonick is a crane operator at the plant. From his perch atop the crane, he watches the fog give way. He says it was like a curtain being opened. In the following days, residents say that they had never seen a bluer sky. The sun shone so bright, people had to squint. The immediate crisis is over, and now begins the aftermath. Twenty people have died, 34 are hospitalized, and over 800 more need medical attention. Denora's Board of Health calls an emergency meeting to discuss what they've just witnessed, an event that will come to be known as the worst air pollution disaster in American history. They have a question. How was this allowed to happen? When
2: you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: Even before the smog has cleared from the Monongahela Valley, the United States Steel Corporation sends a small army of chemists and public health experts to Donora to investigate. They need to figure out what went wrong and who's to blame. Here's Brian Charlton again. The superintendent of the mill, I'm
1: certain, at some point called all of his foremen together and, and all of the engineers and said, what are we doing differently? In
0: other words, what change in the plant's operation caused the disaster? But when the engineers look, they find no difference. Workers had been feeding the furnaces and smelting the steel, as they'd done for over 40 years.
1: Well, the only thing different was the temperature inversion. Normally,
0: hot air rises
2: like a hot air balloon, because hot air is lighter than cold air.
0: Dr. Debra Davis explained that during an inversion, this typical pattern gets flipped. Hot air gets trapped against the ground and can't rise past the cold air above. So pollutants in the air can't dissipate. For example, pollutants in a plume of smoke from a train.
2: And I interviewed one guy who talked about watching a big coal-fired engine release its plume of coal smoke and watch the plume slowly move along the horizon horizontally and then drop right back
0: down. The train smoke can't get out because, Davis says, cold air is sitting over the town like a lid on a pot. The inversion traps not only smoke, but all the rest of the chemicals and pollutants from the mills. They had nowhere to go but into the homes and the human lungs of Denora. Dr. Davis has looked at the smog victim's autopsy reports. Photos show that their lungs looked like they'd been attacked by poison fluoride gas, the same stuff used in World War I. What makes fluoride so insidious is that when you inhale
2: it, it goes into the lower part of the lung and eventually basically almost crystallizes it so that you are suffocating from the bottom up.
0: Besides the immediate toll of 20 fatalities, Davis attributes 50 deaths in the following months to the smog. And she added that survivors were not untouched. Many ended up with significant heart and lung problems, including Davis's grandmother, her Bubby Pearl.
2: When I was growing up, my mother would tell me stories about her mother, how she was the first woman to hand crank a Model T, which took a lot of force.
0: But Dr. Davis says after the smog, her grandmother was never the same.
2: She suffered 25 heart attacks, and the first one occurred during this killer smog.
0: Now, an epidemiologist like Davis knows that it is very difficult to trace one person's health crisis to a specific event like the smog.
2: But when you have many different people suffering from similar patterns of poor health and a a similar event happening, that's when you can put the puzzle pieces together.
0: One of the experts called in to do just that is a professor at Harvard named Philip Drinker. He's asked to weigh in on the steel plant's role in the disaster. Here's Brian Charlton.
1: Now, Philip Drinker is famous for inventing the iron lung. So he's, he's no lightweight.
0: He is no lightweight. His version of the iron lung has helped save the lives of countless polio patients. And Drinker has spent more than a decade researching the effects of atmospheric pollution on people's health. He's even spoken publicly about another deadly temperature inversion. This one hit a small smelting town in Belgium in 1930. And his verdict?
1: That will never happen here in southwestern Pennsylvania. You guys don't need to worry about anything.
0: Steel executives around the country realize that the disaster at Donora poses a threat to the industry. So one of the large smelting companies hires Drinker and his lab to test a hypothesis. It goes like this. Sulfur dioxide from the plant is not what killed people.
1: This is a loaded investigation because Drinker is going to give United States Steel and the National Association of uh, Smelters exactly what they
0: want. Like other investigators, Drinker declares the deadly smog to be an act of God. He's like, sure, the smoke from the mill played a part. But the real villain here was the temperature inversion, combined with the topography of the river valley. Don't blame it on man, blame it on nature. But a toxicologist on Drinker's team at Harvard says, wait a minute, maybe there's more to investigate here. Her name is Mary Amder. Mary Amder also comes from the valley, and her father had also worked in the mills. Amder had watched lung cancer kill her father. She blamed that on the mills. So this is personal. Her theory goes like this. Maybe toxicologists have been thinking about the danger of pollutants too simplistically. They've been saying basically that if a chemical doesn't kill or maim you on contact, it's safe. But what if there's more to it than that? She
2: questioned what would be the long-term
0: effect of
2: breathing low
0: levels of air pollution. She wonders, what are the cumulative effects of pollution? And how do we test that? She has an idea. Mary Amder heads to a pet store and buys a few guinea pigs. Literal guinea pigs. And she rigs up a contraption in her backyard so she can slowly expose them to low levels of sulfuric oxide. That's the main pollutant emitted by the mills. She exposed animals for longer periods of
2: time to levels of air pollution like you and I might be breathing if we were young people living in Denora,
0: Then she dissected the guinea pigs and examined their lungs for pollutants. She found that after just three days, the lining in the lungs had thickened and scarred, which suggests that breathing chemicals in the air did have a cumulative effect. Which means that even now, after the smog has lifted, the people of Donora are still in danger. And that's true not just in western Pennsylvania, but in polluted cities and towns across the globe. She wrote a paper, and she said she thought that there was a need to control air pollution. This is not what the steel execs want to hear. Remember, they're the ones that hired Philip Drinker. They're the ones funding research at his Harvard lab, the lab where Mary Amder is working to develop her new theory of pollution. They never
2: dreamed that money they were giving to Harvard would go to fund research on the deadly effects of air
0: pollution. Amder presents her findings in 1953. Soon afterward, Philip Drinker fires her. Meanwhile, in Denora, things are fractured. People don't agree about what caused the problem or what to do about it.
1: There were very, very few people who said it was the steel mill's fault.
0: But one person who does is Dr. Rongus, the man who had led people through the smog in a horse drawn carriage. Dr. Rongus gives interviews to the Associated Press and writes newspaper columns about the four days of hell he'd lived through. He's the first doctor to bluntly blame the disaster on the Zinc Works factory
1: took a lot of courage on his part to actually say that. That was something that just wasn't spoken out loud.
0: Rongus and a few other community members say the mill should be moved, far from Donora, where it can't hurt anyone. But lots of other people fear that losing the mill would put an end to the town as they know it.
2: The denial, of course, was profound precisely because people would be losing jobs. The
0: Zinc Works practically owns the town. Almost everyone works there. The town council is stacked with its allies. I think more than half the members worked for
2: the mill. There was a member of the town council who said I've got a darn good job and I'm going to keep it. I don't care what it kills. That was the attitude of people. It was just considered the cost of doing business. In fact, When people would come to Denora, they came because they thought smoke meant jobs.
0: But a local citizens group does push back. It's called the Society for Better Living. The group files a lawsuit against American Steel and Wire.
1: And the United States Steel is about as worried as uh, your local high school team would be if they were playing kindergartners.
0: Steel, at this time, is one of the most powerful industries in the United States. Charlton says it would be like trying to sue Amazon or Google today. Lawyers for American Steel and Wire go to the Society for Better Living, and they say, look, we have all of these scientists saying that the smog was just an act of God. If this goes to court, you'll lose. Why not just settle? And so they do, for $250,000.
1: And if you know anything about United States steel in the 1950s, you know that that basically is pocket change. Um, That's what they put on their dresser at night when when they take their pants off. That's next to nothing.
0: In the aftermath of the 1948 smog, the company wins. But nine years after the disaster, they've fallen behind technologically, and their global competitors swoop in.
1: Somebody built a better mousetrap. Somebody built a better way to smelt zinc. This was just good old-fashioned capitalist competition. This is, this is what happens.
0: The Zinc Works portion of the mill closes in 1957, and the rest of the mill closes a decade later. Thousands of people in Donora lose their jobs, jobs they had sacrificed their health and safety to preserve. Denora became, for for many
2: years, um, you know, a town left behind and part of what was called the Rust Belt throughout the Monongahela Valley as a number of mills shut down and were left to rust.
0: The steelworks move out, and the clean air moves back in. Flowers begin to bloom again in the valley. It's a drastic change from the bare dirt landscape that Dr. Debra Davis knew growing up.
2: As a child, all I knew was that we had wonderful mud pies to play with and that we could sit at the top of hills and slide all the way down to the bottom because nothing grew on them. And then when I came back from my grandfather's funeral, I was
0: astonished at how green everything was. But the pollution has left a mark in the town's higher than normal rates of heart attacks and strokes. If you look back on the legacy of Denora, that's written in the
2: bodies and hearts of the sons and daughters of Denora.
0: A second alarm bell sounds four years after the Denora disaster in 1952 in London a Denora-like brew of sulfur dioxide and fluoride settles over the city and will not move. Again, people die. This raises the same question.
2: If a lot of air pollution in a short period of time could kill healthy, working-class people, what were the long-term effects of this air pollution?
0: The question that had prompted Mary Amder's experiment.
2: Those events really caused the world to wake up and pay attention to the fact that you couldn't just pollute the air.
0: America's environmental movement begins to emerge. Anti-pollution laws get passed in some places. And then in 1970, Congress passes and President Nixon signs the Clean Air Act, an act that can trace part of its roots to Donora, Pennsylvania. So it became the foundation
2: for the Clean Air Movement. It became the foundation for the entire field of air pollution
0: epidemiology. I guess my last question is, again, I don't want to just sort of sit in either a world that's too optimistic or too pessimistic when it comes to this. Like, I don't want to sort of just say, oh, DeNora led to us cleaning up the air, yay. And I also don't want to deny the fact that, like, we may be in a better place now than we were then. We are. How do you balance it all? How do you feel? Well, for the sake
2: of my five grandchildren— I'm delighted that we've made progress, but I'm also deeply disappointed that we haven't made more progress. But the
0: reality is there's always going to be trade-offs. Trade-offs between industry and the environment that are still very much alive today. According to the World Health Organization, around 7 million people a year die from air pollution, especially in countries like India and China.
2: They may be different countries and speak different
0: languages, but the lungs are the same. For decades, the people of Donora tried to put that week in October of 1948 behind them. But then, 60 years after the smog swept through, the Donora Historical Society opened a museum. Brian Charlton works there now. Our
1: logo is the Stacks of the Zinc Works.
0: It commemorates the survivors of the disaster. And it celebrates the role that Denora played in raising the alarm about pollution. The museum's tagline is, Clean Air Started Here. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address historythisweek@history.com or you can leave us a voicemail 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Debra Davis, author of When Smoke Ran Like Water, Tales of Environmental Deception and the Battle Against Pollution, and Brian Charlton from the Denora Historical Society and Smog Museum. We'd also like to thank Mark Pavelic and David Lonick. We got a lot of help from the folks over at the Smog Museum. They even gave us access to the oral history interviews that you heard in this episode. Those interviews were originally collected for the documentary Rumor of Blue Sky, which was produced by the Keystone Film Group. This episode was produced by Rebecca Nolan. It was sound designed by Dan Rosado and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Morgan Givens, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.